The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tip City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and I'd like to welcome the program today Cliff Nesteroff. He's the author of a new book called Outrageous, a history of showbiz and the culture wars. He joins us on the telephone in Los Angeles. Welcome to the program, Cliff. Thank you, Vic. Cliff, um, this is fascinating. Would you describe yourself as a uh, historian of comedy? Yes, or a comedy historian. <laughs> okay, and I, I guess your way you got into this was being a comedian yourself. Yes, I think most people that uh, do stand-up or have the knack for being funny, they always seem to have a interest in comedy before they start doing it. They're fans first and uh, then become purveyors of it, and I was no exception. And when I was doing stand-up, I started in the late 1990s. I quit in 2006. Um, I was collecting records at the time and, of course, started to pick up comedy records whenever I saw them in a Salvation Army thrift store or a Value Village or a Goodwill store. And it inadvertently kind of schooled me on the history of comedy, picking up these records of a young Bob Newhart or a young Jonathan Winters or a young, clean-shaven George Carlin. Um, I was fans of that stuff. But then my curiosity was really piqued when I started to find all these records by people I had never heard of, like Vaughn Meter and Woody Woodbury and Rusty Warren. And their records seemed to be in every single thrift store, yet I had never heard of them, never seen them on TV. And so that kind of led me down the path to, uh, to try and learn, like, who are these people and why were their records bestsellers? And so that was sort of the spark when I was a teenager collecting records. Yeah, Von Meter had like the number one album back in 1961 or 62, and uh, of course, Knockers Up, uh, Rusty Warren. <laughs> I, I have also been a denizen of thrift stores in my time, so I, I've seen those same unloved records out there, Cliff. And I see you've written some previous books, which I have not read, but I'm going to guess that we have progression going on here and that you wrote this book kind of as an outgrowth of the earlier work. Do you want to talk about those early books first, briefly, yeah. and then go into the new one? Yeah. Well, I consider it personally a trilogy. I don't think anybody else does because uh, on the surface, the premises seem to be completely different. The first book is called The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. That was published by Grove Press back in 2015. And it was basically a... Uh, linear telling of the history of stand-up comedy, how it came to be, how it evolved. A big chunk of that book is about organized crime and how uh, the mafia and the mob uh, as a whole controlled nightclubs in America in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and that if you did stand-up comedy in those days, even pre-Las Vegas, no matter where you were performing, almost uh, without exception, you were working for organized crime. So that was a big crux of the first book, but it starts in the vaudeville days and goes up to the modern days. The second book is called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy. And that premise was a little bit mystifying to some people. The, the title of the book is taken from a joke uh, by a guy named Charlie Hill, who was uh, from Wisconsin, 
And he was the first and last Native American comedian to appear on The Tonight Show. Uh, he did it twice in the Johnny Carson era and twice in the Jay Leno era. And talk a lot about Will Rogers and his Cherokee background. But that second book, one of the main um, cruxes of it is this notion that comedy comes from pain. And yet uh, there are very few prominent indigenous comedians in America. And so I sort of explore the reasons for that, why there have been so few, uh, the marginalization of indigenous people and also the current rise of indigenous representation in comedy and show business. So I talk about the people who created the TV series Reservation Dogs before the program even came out. So that book sort of lays the groundwork for this uh, bubbling to the surface of a new era of indigenous representation. So that's what the second book was about. And now the new book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars, um, tries to debunk this premise that we hear so often in our current body politic that you can't say anything anymore, that you can't joke about anything anymore, that you can't do anything anymore. Uh, my premise is exactly the opposite, that you have more freedom of expression today, not less than at any other period in the history of comedy. And I give examples of just how taboo almost every subject was for most of the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, up until recent history, 2004, with the Janet Jackson uh, nipple scandal. Uh, it was not that long ago, but compared to what is permissible today in terms of expression of sexuality and whatnot on cable, on streaming, uh, everywhere, satellite radio, we have more freedom of expression, not less. So that's the premise of the new book. But all three of the books sort of intertwine with the history of show business and the history of comedy and sort of tackle the same time period. And while none of the stories repeat, there's a lot of thematic crossover in all three of these books. If I had to pick a couple of things that I think are underlying themes in this book, it would be uh, racism and control. One of the cliches you hear today is that, well, it used to be right-wing people that wanted to censor, and now today it's left-wing people that want to censor. I consider this to be not completely accurate. I think the more uh, accurate assessment is that both forms of censorship or suppression occur concurrently and simultaneously at all times. And on the right, you often have uh, censorship coming from a place of uh, religious dogma, where people want to suppress something that contradicts their religion, or political dom dogma, where people want to uh, suppress something that is critical of their political point of view. On the left, the majority of the censorship, and people never want to call it censorship, um, they'll twist themselves in knots to come up with any other sort of definition other than censorship or suppression, is usually coming from a place of trying to censor or suppress racism, bigotry, or at least that which is perceived as bigotry. And so a lot of the talking that you hear today about, oh, well, the left-wingers are trying to censor you, it's usually because somebody is reacting to something they consider to be uh, prejudicial and people want to suppress that. You know, And in theory, it sounds good, but is it censorship? Yeah, technically it is. And nobody really wants to admit that because they consider it, if they're an anti-racist, a good thing. So in this book, I sort of um, deal with those concepts and those American contradictions, the idea 
of uh, First Amendment absolutism, even when sometimes it seems like it might be contradicting uh, logic. Um, so these are heavy topics, but ultimately I keep my books light and fill them with a, a bevy of ridiculous examples of nonsense and hysteria. For instance, in this new book, there's a story in there about a preacher in 1985 who organized a mass burning of uh, a record called Television's Greatest Hits. Uh-huh. It was a collection of classic television theme music. He organized a burning at his church of this record, uh, several hundred copies, and had children light them on fire because he claimed that if you played a certain song backwards, you could hear secret satanic messages. And the song in question was the theme music to Mr. Ed, right. the classic sitcom about a talking horse. Yes, your uh, comedy background definitely uh, leaks through uh, throughout the book, Cliff. My, my guess is that Cliff Nesteroff and uh, the book is outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And you started off with blackface and you end it with blackface. And, and it, it's very punchy. This book moves very quickly and you have lots of curated quotations from people that we have heard of and lots of letters to the editor from people who are outraged about whatever's been happening in, in their time period. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO, and my guest today is Cliff Nesteroff. He joins us on the telephone in Los Angeles. And we need to pause for a moment and take a breath, and we'll be back right after this message with Cliff Nesteroff talking about his history. The Book Nook continues on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I've been joined on the telephone by Cliff Nesteroff. He started off as a stand-up comedian, and he is now an eminent historian of comedy in the book nook. You just mentioned how the left side can censor just as much as the right side, particularly now. And uh, I had not heard of this incident where uh, David Letterman, who I think of as being a fairly progressive guy, apparently this comedian taped something on his show where he was going after the pro-lifers and, and they censored him. Yeah, it's an infamous uh, incident concerning the comedian Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks had appeared on uh, Late Night with David Letterman on NBC uh, several times before, eight or nine times. He was always sort of considered by many to be the Lenny Bruce of the early 1990s, uh, Bill Hicks. He would go after people that he considered um, conformist or reactionary. He would criticize fellow comedians like Jay Leno for being too um, uh, complacent, you know. And so anyways, Bill Hicks did a routine in 1993 on The Late Show with David Letterman after Letterman had moved from the 12.30 time slot at NBC to the 11.30 time slot on CBS. And when they made that move to an hour earlier, the show had a much bigger budget. It was considered much more mainstream. There were new sensitivities uh, now that they were over at CBS in an earlier time slot. And Bill Hicks, the comedian, did this routine about uh, pro-lifers. And he said, you know, I, I, would, I would have more respect for these people if instead of uh, uh, blowing up abortion clinics, if they would link arms around cemeteries and try and tear open uh, caskets, get out, you know, that's pro-life to him, uh-huh. to Bill Hicks. So he did this routine, 
And it did well in front of the studio audience, laughter, applause. Um, you know, they taped that program early at like 5 p.m. and then it airs at 11.30 p.m. It seemed all fine. And then a couple hours later, Bill Hicks got a phone call at his hotel room from uh, Robert Morton, the producer, saying, uh, Bill, we have to cut the entire routine from the show tonight. And Hicks said, why? He said, well, you have to understand our audience, meaning that they would not accept a routine that made fun of uh, the pro-life movement. And Bill Hicks said, Bob, when I'm not on your show, I watch your show. I'm your audience. Are you saying I'm not appropriate for me? Mm. You know? And Robert Morton said, it's not our decision. It's the network's decision. It's the network's decision. And so they did. They, they deleted the entire routine from the show. What was not revealed at the time, because the network was the one that was blamed for this decision, turns out that privately it was David Letterman's decision. Mm -hmm. And Robert Morton, the producer, sort of ran interference, did not want to let that information out. Mm -hmm. So they sort of blamed the network, which seems like the, the, the logical assumption that it would be a network suit that would have that routine deleted. But it was Letterman himself who felt that it was inappropriate and requested that it not air. Now, decades later, uh, David Letterman apologized for this after Bill Hicks had died, and he had Bill Hicks's mother on the show, and they showed the entire routine as it originally had been intended to air mm. uh, decades later. It's obvious that despite the fact that there are some new taboos in society and in comedy, that overall we have more freedom of expression today, uh, not less. Of course, 25 years before that, uh, CBS pulled the plug on the Smothers Brothers for being uh, so outrageous. And that's the book, Outrageous, by Cliff Nesteroff, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And an underlying theme that I'd like to point out that was very informative to me was the fact that the John Birch Society that we thought of in the 1960s, supporting people like Barry Goldwater in 1964, who was very conservative— they kind of went underground, and there's all this money, and you keep cycling back to the Cokes in Kansas and their money and their connection with the John Birchers and all these organizations like the yeah. Heritage Foundation. This is scary. The Koch brothers, and one of them has passed away. Now it's just a Koch brother, Charles Koch. But, of course, they're notorious in politics. Their incredible influence in American politics and in lobbying and in think tanks and in ghostwriting legislation, so on and so forth. What many people may not realize is that their father, Fred Koch, was the co-founder of the John Birch Society in 1958 with a guy named Robert Welch, who was a candy manufacturer or a former candy manufacturer. He had previously been responsible for the well-known uh, candy Junior Mints. He co-founded the John Birch Society, him and Fred Koch, father of the Koch brothers. They had some other weird founders, a guy named Revillo P. Oliver, whose name was the same forwards and backwards. Revillo P. Oliver, Revillo P. Oliver. And he was a vicious anti-Semite and Holocaust denier. Together, they founded the John Birch Society in 1958, which was the leading anti-civil rights organization throughout the 1960s. They accused... Dr. Martin Luther King of being a communist who was uh, imposing uh, or had plans to impose a communist-style dictatorship in the United States. They accused the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 of being uh, a surefire way to lead America down the road to tyranny. 
So they were sort of a, a rabid anti-communist organization, very conspiratorial. They hated the Beatles. Uh, they hated uh, Dick Gregory, the comedian. They had a lot of uh, enemies, and they had a lot of wild theories. They at one point accused President Eisenhower of being a communist dupe. So because of this rhetoric, they're mostly ridiculed throughout the 1960s. People made fun of them. They were constantly uh, uh, made fun of in the pages of Mad Magazine, one of George Carlin's very first stand-up routines as a solo comic in 1964, ridiculed the John Birch Society. Bob Dylan had a famous satiric song called The Talking John Birch Society Blues. So they were sort of ridiculed and maligned throughout the 60s, even though they did have um, uh, somewhat of a significant following. They certainly got a lot of press in the 1960s. But by the early 1970s, most Americans were persuaded that the civil rights movement was a noble thing and that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a respectable person. And all of the doomsday prophecy that the John Birch Society had forecast had not come to pass. So there's a gentleman that I profile in the book named Paul Wyrick, who had started as a lecturer on the John Birch Society speaking circuit and who had been largely derided at the time by Republicans themselves as an extremist who was not one to take seriously. In 1973, well aware that the John Birch Society was a laughingstock and outgunned by the civil rights movement and its successes, rebranded, and he founded something called the Heritage Foundation. And he did so with an influx of cash donations from Richard Mellon Scaife and his Scaife Foundation and the Coors Beer Empire, which had for decades supported such reactionary causes. And in fact, in the early 60s, if you worked at the Coors plant in Colorado, when you got your paycheck, Within the envelope was a pamphlet of John Birch Society anti-civil rights propaganda. So Coors was a very well-known brand by 1973. They helped fund and establish the Heritage Foundation which, with uh, Richard Mellon Scaife. And this gave Paul Weyrich incredible political influence. And they very quickly got involved in censorship campaigns in 1974 in Kanawha County, West Virginia. They um, supplied lawyers for these parents that wanted to pull textbooks from the local school district uh, because it had taught about the civil rights movement. They claimed that the fact that it had quoted from the song, We Shall Overcome, was proof that these textbooks were furthering a communist propaganda. The Heritage Foundation uh, um, put its name on the map by supporting this textbook censorship campaign in 1974 that was trying to pull black history from the schools. And then by the end of the decade, 1979, the same guy, Paul Weyrich, former John Birch Society lecturer, founder of the Heritage Foundation, founded a new organization called the Moral Majority and hired Jerry Falwell, the preacher, as his frontman. And of course, as people will remember, the Moral Majority was involved in all sorts of censorship campaigns uh, throughout the 1980s. They went after TV shows like Three's Company with John Ritter and Suzanne Summers. They went after uh, Tony Randall, of all people, for a sitcom he was in called Love, Sydney. Anyways, the roots of these censorship campaigns, many of which are still with us today as people fight and push back against the teaching of black history, uh, you know, whether it's in Florida, whether it's in Texas, wherever, textbook controversies, so much of it can be traced back to this uh, gentleman named Paul Weyrich, who 
by the admission of his own friends and contemporaries, was considered sort of the godfather of the culture war. He's the guy who made abortion a political issue. It was a strategy they came up with in 1979 in an attempt to split Democrats in two, because Democrats were known for having a large, substantial Catholic voting base, and Catholics following the teachings of the Pope were opposed to abortion. Paul Weyrich said, you know, if we could make abortion a political issue, we could split the Democrats and consolidate power for ourselves. So he was really a strategic person, and much of what we live with today started with him. Paul Weyrich, former lecturer with the John Birch Society. Fascinating. My guest is Cliff Nesteroff. We're talking about his book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. You're listening to The Book Nook on 91.3 WYSO, fact-based journalism in service of democracy. Uh, you just mentioned how they went after the Catholic vote. Uh, Catholics traditionally voted Democrat. And uh, then we had another architect besides this Warwick character, another guy who was responsible in my view, and you talk a lot about him in the book, for this fracturing. And he came up with the term the silent majority when he was a speechwriter for Richard M. Nixon, and that is Pat Buchanan. Mm -hmm. and, and I see a through line directly from Nixon's silent majority to the MAGA of today and, and President Donald Trump. And, and you pick out a quote here. When uh, Buchanan was running for president in 2000, he says, we must take our country back, cleaning up what I think is the dismal swamp, draining that swamp. That sounds really familiar. And then you follow it up by a quote with real estate mogul Donald Trump, who, in my opinion, only believes in one thing, and that is himself. And he says about Buchanan, quote, he's anti-Semitic. He's anti-black. He obviously has been having a love affair with Adolf Hitler. You know how to pick him. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, Pat Buchanan is such an interesting case. He's still alive. He was and is, compared to somebody like Donald Trump, infinitely more charming. There was something unusual there with Pat Buchanan, because a guy like Paul Weyrich, not particularly charming. A guy like Pat Robertson, not particularly charming. But Pat Buchanan was extremely charming, and he was able to find himself a spot in mainstream media, despite the fact whenever he ran a political campaign, it was often with the uh, most vile anti-immigrant, uh, frequently uh, bigoted sort of um, talking points, policies, and so on and so forth. But you know, you will remember him as a regular on CNN's Crossfire, and he had a sense of humor, which was unusual for many people of his sort of extreme political persuasion. When Saturday Night Live would make fun of Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan would run clips of it on Crossfire, and he would laugh, and he would say, that's great comedy. You know, most people of his political mind would do the opposite. They would say something like, well, SNL isn't funny anymore. It's just a political hack job. Mm. Pat Buchanan never said that. You know, he was very media savvy. And he was the guy who orchestrated Spiro Agnew's famous speech attacking the media in 1969 and saying that they were, um, they were giving aid to the enemy by showing footage of hippies and yippies and anti-war protesters and that they were really 
responsible for the discord in America, that they were anti-American. Pat Buchanan also was an editor at TV Guide uh, throughout the 1970s and would write editorials saying that uh, television news and sitcoms were biased against conservatives, so on and so forth. And uh, in the early 80s, he very briefly worked for the Reagan White House, um, but Larry Speaks, the White House uh, press secretary under Reagan, um, said that he caused too much trouble within the White House because he was trying to move things even further to the right than they already were um, during the Reagan years around 1983 or so. But he does have a through line throughout uh, throughout the culture wars. And, of course, his famous moment, his most famous speech was at the 1992 Republican National Convention. He had run for president that year, um, but uh, worried that he was going to split the vote. Um, the Republicans, George Bush's campaign in particular, offered him a keynote spot at the RNC convention to deliver his own speech um, in exchange for dropping out of the race and throwing his support behind George Bush. And that speech became very well known. He invoked the name of the culture wars. He said, friends, there is a war going on in America, a cultural war. And he invoked all this familiar boogeymen that you hear today about gay people and gay rights, not referring to it as gay rights, but special rights, uh, abortion, feminism. You know, he invoked all of these boogeymen. And when you watch the speech today, compared to the political uh, rhetoric that we hear now, it almost feels very tame. But at the time, it was considered um, almost bad form and apocalyptic. And many Republican strategists, including Rush Limbaugh, said that they did not think the speech would do any good, that it would do more harm than good because it was so uh, divisive in its tone. Um, but it kept Pat Buchanan's name in the papers for years to come, and it's still referenced today as a notable moment in political history. We're uh, getting outrageous in the book nook today with my guest Cliff Nesteroff and his book Outrageous. Cliff joins us on the telephone in Los Angeles, and uh, he is a historian of comedy and a former comedian, and there's a lot of fun and funniness in this book, and we'll continue right after this. My guest is Cliff Nesteroff, and we're talking about his book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. There's so much in this book, and you uh, just mentioned Buchanan uh, making that speech in 92, and, and you mentioned George Bush. You meant George H.W. Bush, uh, yes. Bush Sr. You have a, another really great uh, paragraph in here. I laughed, and I said to myself, yeah, Cliff's definitely a comedian. You wrote in the section about The Simpsons. First Lady Barbara Bush watched just one episode of The Simpsons. Despite having raised future President George W. Bush, he called The Simpsons the dumbest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a cheap, cheap joke, oh, but ouch. I couldn't oh, resist, oh, of oh, course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's sort of the typical type of joke you would have heard yeah. on a late night uh, monologue during the George W. Bush years about him being a dumb guy. But uh, yeah. there's, an, there's another joke that I quote in there um, from the Dan Quayle era uh-huh. in which David Letterman is joking about how Dan Quayle was upset with the sitcom Murphy Brown. Some listeners might remember that controversy. The real reason Dan Quayle is upset with the sitcom Murphy Brown is because he feels there aren't enough realistic portrayals of really, really dumb guys. 
And so <laughs> it's not a dissimilar joke to the one I put in there about Barbara Bush, despite giving birth to George W. Bush, said The Simpsons was the dumbest thing she had ever seen. Yeah. But that's a real quote. She did call The Simpsons the dumbest thing she had ever seen well, and uh, claimed to have only ever watched one episode and was not interested in watching any more. Quayle uh, was trying to blame the riots that took place in Los Angeles after the Rodney King uh, incident on uh, Murphy Brown, which was really bizarre. And, and yes, he, yes he, he claimed that the riots were the result of the broken family, the fatherless home, and that a sitcom like uh, Murphy Brown depicting a single mother only uh, contributed to such discord. Is this Joey Bishop on the cover? No, that's uh, Lenny Bruce. Is that Lenny? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, well, Lenny, he got arrested for saying a, a Yiddish word, didn't he? Yes. In 1962, in liberal Hollywood, uh, Lenny Bruce was arrested in the parking lot of the Crescendo nightclub for using the word schmuck. Now, it was one of these cases in which the police showed up with the intention in advance of arresting him. And he knew that the police were present. It was the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And he didn't do anything illegal, but they had come there with the intention of arresting him. So he said nothing on stage that was illegal. They rolled up his sleeves in the parking lot looking for needle marks, which you could be arrested for back in those days. And they didn't find any needle marks. So they just kind of looked at their notes of things that they wrote down during his act, and they decided that schmuck was obscene, so they arrested him on those grounds. Mm. Um, you know, this this is one of the examples that is so obvious to me when people say today you can't joke about anything anymore or you can't say anything anymore. And you look at an example like that, a comedian who used the word schmuck, and he gets arrested for it. You know, it's such a... Uh, extreme example of repression compared to what comedians go through today. Today, you might have to deal with some social media hysteria or outrage, but you do not get arrested for the content of your stand-up act. And, you know, somebody who does a sexually explicit act like Nikki Glaser, very funny, her act is not controversial today, but she would not have been able to get away with it throughout most of the 20th century. Most of the words that she uses are taboo. Most expressions of sexuality throughout the 20th century were taboo. As I mentioned earlier, the 2004 Janet Jackson incident, not even 20 years ago, and it was a national hysteria. So compare that to the allowances of sexuality and depictions of such throughout our culture today, throughout most of the 20th century, Specific criticism of politicians was forbidden in comedy. Uh, commentary and criticism of religion was uh, verboten in comedy for most of the 20th century. Cussing and swear words and even non-cuss words, swear words like schmuck, uh, were things that uh, could get you arrested. And that just doesn't happen anymore, thankfully. Uh, so when people sound the alarm that uh, comedy has never been in a worse state or in a more censorous period, it simply isn't true. You know, you just look at the evidence of the past three centuries, and it's demonstrably uh, false, this concept that you can't say anything. Well, 
we have no sense of perspective because we're living now. And, and you end the book pretty much as the Internet kicks in. And I like that because so many things changed then. And that echo chamber opened up where all those people that 50 years ago would have been the silent majority are all now online and they're all blabbing their mouths in their little echo chambers. And, and you keep going back to Janet Jackson. And I'm thinking, do I have to keep talking about Rusty Warren? What's going on here? But let's talk about music. Let's talk about rap music and the police. There's a lot of things that are not in my book. Um, you know, my, when I worked with my editor, he was like, well, just choose one of these stories because the, the other one, you know, they're too similar. You don't want to be redundant. Uh, there's a story that is not in the book uh, concerning Bill Clinton calling out Sister Soldier, who in the 90s was a popular uh, rapper and very political. Um, Ice-T, his famous song, Cop Killer, which is not even a rap song, although it was always characterized as such. It's actually a rock and roll song. Um, with his band Body Count, um, another political football in the 90s that Dan Quayle went after, a guy named Jack Thompson, uh, who was a lawyer who had previously prosecuted two live crew for obscenity in the late 1980s. He wanted Warner Brothers executives tried uh, for incitement because they were the ones who had released the song Cop Killer. They said it was going to lead to widespread murders of policemen throughout the United States. It never happened, but it was a great way to demonize uh, a rapper and rap music. And throughout the 80s and 90s, hip-hop was really a political scapegoat. And you have to look at the reasons why. One, of course, it was primarily a black art form. And secondly, it was highly political. They would talk about racism, police brutality in rap music. And even though Cop Killer um, was not specifically about the Rodney King incident, it became something of an anthem um, during that time period because it was sort of a anti-police brutality uh, vengeance fantasy. And so all of these things entered into the body politic. But if you trace the lineage of music hysteria, you often see people in positions of political power demonizing music that is largely black in its origin. So there was fire and brimstone in the 1920s and 30s against jazz music. Mm -hmm. And the euphemisms that were used to demonize it were phrases like jungle music, savage music, the beat of the bush, the wilds of Africa. And those types of terms were then invoked again when rock and roll became popular in the early 1950s, rhythm and blues and black artists were protested by the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizens Council, and many other anti-civil rights organizations. Rock music was demonized because it had encouraged what they called race mixing, black kids, white kids dancing together. And then we see the same type of language invoked again in the 1980s and early 1990s as rap music becomes popular. And so when you see the same type of demonization tactics and talking points and language being invoked throughout all these periods, it becomes more and more transparent. It was never um, uh, that well concealed, that meaning the racist sort of uh, characterization behind the demonization of jazz music, of rock music, of rap music. But it is remarkable, as I study it, 
to see through the decades just how similar those demonization tactics are. Well, music breaks down racial barriers. You have an account in there where there was a concert and they were all running out on the floor to dance and the police said, no, only the white people can dance. Yeah, I believe that was in Texas. I think it was a, uh, I believe it was a Fats Domino concert. Yep. Yeah, and that was very common back then. It's the weird thing. It's like you listen to Fats Domino today. It's the most innocuous music. There's a story in the book about Nat King Cole, uh-huh. completely apolitical, very popular with uh, white and black audiences. He was performing in Birmingham, Alabama, I think in 1950. 54, 55, somewhere in there, and the local white citizens' council, uh, their nickname was the Uptown Clan. They didn't wear a sheets and robes. They dressed in suits and considered themselves a, uh, a sort of um, business improvement association. But they were very much a white supremacist organization. Four members of the white citizens' council in Birmingham, Alabama, during a Nat King Cole concert while he was on stage performing – ran up on stage, pulled him from the piano stool, and beat him senseless in front of the whole audience, and he was hospitalized. And uh, Nat King Cole had never made a political statement. He goes, I don't understand it. I'm not part of the civil rights movement. Why would they do this to me? And the NAACP took that moment, actually, to criticize Nat King Cole. And they said, that's the problem. You don't understand. Like, you're not part of the civil rights movement, and it doesn't matter. They hate you just because you're black. Um, but those were the type of things that were happening in the 1950s. Black music was considered a major threat to white supremacy, and it may not have ever been explained in such explicit terms. People weren't using the phrase necessarily white supremacy or the phrase black music, but that was the sort of underlying, underpinning understanding. And, you know, the, the time period, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, there was sort of this uh, movement to forestall progress, to try and stop it in its tracks. And black music and rock and roll music and uh, things that celebrated black culture were considered a threat to many people. It's the book nook. You're listening to Cliff Nesteroff, who's joined us on the phone in Los Angeles. His new book is Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. Near the end of the book... Um, we get into the invasion of Iraq, and um, some people will recall the uproar against the Dixie Chicks. And we had all these organizations, all these uh, foundations who were controlling the narrative and, and making it seem like this was the thing to do. There were weapons of mass destruction. We need to invade Iraq. This whole thing was orchestrated. You, you get into that. Yeah, well, I, you know, this is one of the few things in, in the book that um, occurred during my lifetime, and I was living in Canada at the time, and so we had a different, um, uh, we had different information than Americans had, and we would watch from afar just agog that Americans would fall for this. You know, there were massive protests at the time. Uh, one of the largest protests in the history of England occurred in opposition to the Iraq war prior to the invasion. A half million people marched. I remember being in Vancouver where 25,000 people marched. Um, and so it seemed obvious that world public opinion was opposed to this action. But you wouldn't know it living in the United States. I remember seeing a debate on CNBC 
in early 2003, and it was supposed to be a debate between two opposing voices regarding the potential invasion of Iraq. And the pro-war voice said, we need to invade Iraq immediately. And the so-called anti-war voice said, uh, no, we have to wait six months and then invade. <laughs> and those were the parameters of the debate was not, uh, you know, don't invade at all. It was either invade now or invade a little bit later. And a lot of the so-called experts that were carted out in front of the cameras at that time were people who were representatives of things like the Heritage Foundation founded by Paul Weirich, the co-founder of the Moral Majority, the former John Birch Society lecturer. And these uh, spokespeople were seldom uh, um, dissected. You know, They would say, so-and-so is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and he joins us today to talk about uh, mm-hmm. weapons of mass destruction. Well, they never explained what, what is a senior fellow. Well, it sounds impressive, but what is it? What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean anything. It's a euphemism. It's meant to give the illusion of scholarship from a guy who really is uh, beholden to ancient John Birch Society-style philosophy. Uh, so-and-so is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Well, what is the Heritage Foundation? They would not stop for a moment to explain to the viewers what the Heritage Foundation is. Oh, well, they're a pro-censorship organization that favors the banning of black history and uh, got their start in 1974 with this major censorship campaign. They're funded by the Scaife Foundation. They're funded by uh, the, the Coors Beer Empire. You know, no explanation whatsoever. We're just expected to believe these people that are on our screen. They must be smarter than us. They're on TV. The guy's wearing a bow tie. He's using phrases like freedom and liberty and founding fathers. He must know what he's talking about. Not pausing for a second to analyze or dissect and realize that uh, the people that are the spokespeople are often funded by some of the most extreme and vested interests who um, stand to profit from the invasion of a country that is known for um, for its oil industry and whatnot. So that still happens today. We see all kinds of representatives. Um, when Joe Rogan and Neil Young had that controversy uh, during COVID, in which Neil Young said he was going to pull his songs from Spotify because Spotify sponsored Joe Rogan, and they had had a doctor on who was uh, skeptical skeptical of uh, COVID health information. That was a big news story, but not too many people paused to dissect who was the doctor that was on that episode of the Joe Rogan show. He was a doctor who represented something called the Heartland Institute. Mm -hmm. The Heartland Institute is a think tank in Chicago that was founded by Philip Morris in 1985. Their original intention was to recruit legitimate people from the medical profession to go on TV, to write newspaper editorials, to appear on the radio, and say that there was no credible link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And they would pay doctors who were already established with reputations a million dollars to go on TV and lie. So that's what the Heartland Institute is. All these decades later, they're still around, and they have expanded their scope to hire scientists to say that global warming is a myth and to hire doctors to say that we should have no um, health regulations or restrictions when it comes to COVID. We have to keep America in business. So that detail was never pointed out. All the uh, uh, media coverage about this thing going on between the Joe Rogan show and Neil Young, and they never mentioned 
that this doctor who was the guest in question was from this think tank called the Heartland Institute. So unfortunately, when it comes to think tanks, when it comes to these foundations, whether it's the DeVos Foundation, the Scaife Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, the Bradley Foundation, these names come up all the time, but there's very, very, very little scrutiny of what they are, who they are, who funds them, and what their motives are. But they are the driving force in the modern culture wars. And much of the nonsense that you hear on social media, cable news, talk radio, newspapers, and much of it also seeps into the mainstream and gets picked up by credible newspapers, um, you know, that's where the crux of the culture war is. But there's so little scrutiny about it, it's almost shocking. Yeah, DeVos, uh Secretary of Education under Trump, uh, they've taken over in a way, and... uh, Glenn Beck, you talk about how they would just feed the stuff straight to him and he would read it like it was part of his uh, his normal shtick. We're running out of time here. I just have one more question for you, which I'm sure you're going to have an intriguing answer for. In your acknowledgments, you thank President Theodore Roosevelt. Why? <laughs> that is a, uh, a pseudonym for Conan O'Brien. That is what he is known as around his office. And uh, Okay. The acknowledgments at the very bottom, I say thank you to uh, members of the Secret Club. And the Secret Club is just a uh, mailing list, a private email list that I'm on, of which he is a member. And the other people that are rattled off in that list were all members. And we just send photos to each other all day of Jerry Lewis in compromising positions <laughs> and other nerdy, esoteric nonsense related to the history of show business. Are you working on another book? Well, I'm always uh, working on research and notes. When it comes to a new book, I'm sort of um, at the behest of whatever I can sell and whatever a publisher wants. Mm -hmm. So I have book ideas that often get turned down. I have a a thing I want to do on the history of the beat generation and the hippie generation Mm -hmm. as it relates to show business. I have a thing that I want to do on the history of Canadian comedy, but for an American audience. I have a book that I would like to publish that is just transcripts of interviews that I've done with elderly comedians, almost all who have passed away since, people like Jack Carter and Will Jordan and Alan and Rossi, old school Vegas comedians who I interviewed at length uh, many years ago. I would like to get that out there in uh, in book form. Um, so I'm always kicking around ideas. I always have files on my computer full of research that could be turned into a book at any time. It's just a matter of finding a publisher who's actually interested in uh, putting it together. Well, it's amazing to me to look at that trajectory and to see, as you point out in your book, how people who were considered to be liberal and progressive in some instances turned into just the opposite. Steve Allen is a classic example. Yes, and I love Steve Allen, and I hope people who read the book don't think that I am in any way slamming the guy. I always thought he was one of the funniest, fastest, wittiest people. Um, and he was a great champion of comedians in the 1950s. He was the guy with with the bravery to put Lenny Bruce on television. And he was always the, the, the greatest comedy audience, the greatest fan of comedy, Steve Allen. By the late 1990s, he felt that America was in the toilet and that show business was the contributing factor. And in his last book, which was published after he died, called Vulgarians at the Gate, mm-hmm. He called the Fairley brothers, the guys who made Dumb and Dumber, the sickest people in Hollywood. He said that the David Spade sitcom Just Shoot Me 
and the teen drama Dawson's Creek were encouraging um, loose morals. And he was actually recruited by an evangelical organization run by a guy named Brent Bazell III to be the face of this sort of anti-television crusade. And there was a series of ads that ran in newspapers across America with a picture of Steve Allen and a big, bold headline that said, Parents, are you tired of television sending your children down a moral sewer? <laughs> and then it had bullet points of all the things that were objectionable, such as TV shows depicting couples uh, sleeping together who weren't married. And then there was a little coupon you could clip out and send money to this guy, Brent Bazell III, who ran this pro-censorship organization. After Steve Allen died in the year 2004, Brent Bazell III was the main guy behind that Janet Jackson nipple controversy. It was his campaign that ultimately led to the half-million-dollar fine lodged against CBS by the FCC. And then irony of all ironies, or maybe not irony at all, but Brent Bazell III's father had been Joseph McCarthy's speechwriter. He ghostwrote Conscience of the Conservative for Barry Goldwater in 1964, and he himself had a organization that went against TV shows like Norman Lear's All in the Family in the early 70s. Mm. His son, this guy Brent Pazell III, forms this organization, recruits Steve Allen, goes after Janet Jackson. His son, Brent Pazell IV, was one of the people arrested for storming the Capitol on January 6th. So it is hilarious to me when I research this stuff, the, the extent of the lineage, the family tree of reaction that uh, goes through the generations, the ripple effect. Fred Koch, father of the Koch brothers, co-founder of the John Birch Society. You know, it's just amazing um, the reverberations of just a handful of players and how they have affected our culture in a way that most of us simply don't realize. And that is outrageous. A History of Showbiz <laughs> and the Culture Wars by Cliff Nestroff. Cliff, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. You heard about it on the book nook for the book nook. My name is Vic McEunis.